Hello there, and welcome back to Peace In Their Time, episode 164, Breaks Not Included. For the past few weeks, I've been covering the agricultural side of the first five-year plan and all the insanity that went along with it. But the reality is that even as important as collectivization was and how many millions of lives it affected and how it completely changed how people lived in the USSR, it wasn't actually the plan's priority. As I discussed in my introduction of the five-year plan, the squeezing of the countryside was meant to deliver two things. One, excess capital that had been tied up by the free enterprise farming operations that could be alternatively invested into industries. And two, rationalize agriculture so that fewer hands could feed the country and those farm workers made redundant could then be made available for industrial work. Both of those would be just the precursor to the true goal of the plan, that being industrialization. And industrialization done quickly at that. As I covered earlier, the USSR's industrial sector had been in a shambles since the Civil War, and to achieve the goal of turning the Soviet Union into a powerhouse on the level of the United States, with the U.S. being the most successful of the capitalist powers and ergo the example to be measured against, uh, would require entire generations of economic development compressed into just a few years. This would require absolute commitment, not just from the nation's communist leadership, but from the tens of millions of Soviet citizens that would be called upon to make do with much less for the purpose of building a modernized country. And while I intend to do an entire standalone episode on the urban culture during the years of the first five-year plan, just know for now that people were by and large on board with the great work ahead of them. At least at first, as we'll be discussing in the next few episodes, the reality of the sacrifices they were called upon to make certainly put a damper on the initial enthusiasm. And while the level of human misery didn't match the dire famines in the countryside during these years, it got notably unbearable even in the sector of the economy that was deemed to be the centerpiece. Important to remember, though, the Soviet people soldiered through the experience all the same, and driven by the idea that they were creating a second revolution that would secure their ideals and make the future of their children all the brighter, they accomplished greater feats than really anywhere else in history. And their feats are very important to this podcast as explaining why the Soviet Union didn't buckle like the Tsarist Empire during wartime came down to events during these years. The USSR by the end of the 30s was a far different beast than the one that entered the decade. But now I should actually get started, and I'll admit personally that's been a kind of a hard thing for me to do. There simply was so much happening that telling the whole story is kind of intimidating. There was activity all across the nation, and every level of the government and Communist Party was mobilized to support the expansion of industrial production. It really was the obsession of the entire state until the outbreak of the war. When I spent most of an episode introducing the Soviet leadership, part of the reason I did so was because those were the men who would be crisscrossing the country night and day, checking in on local efforts and ensuring that they were proceeding according to plan, and if not, banging some heads until progress was underway again. Or, for those stuck closer to Moscow, spending all-nighters going over the latest figures and proposals and seeing just how much progress could be squeezed out of the economy. The atmosphere was directly compared to the Civil War days when the Bolsheviks had functioned in a state of almost perpetual crisis, and the comparison was not an inaccurate one. The state apparatus was being called upon to bear burdens and organize millions of people in ways that had never been attempted before. The sleepy days of the NEP, when the state contented itself with monitoring the affairs of the Nepmen while leaving much of the economy alone, were long gone. 
And speaking of the NEP, a major turn, or dare I say break, with the previous status quo was how the nation's industries were going to be organized. During the 20s, industrial operations were placed into the control of trusts, and while they came under the purview of the Central Bureau called Gosplan, they were given the basic instructions of make money, and then the factory management was given a good deal of leeway in how they operated. Gosplan itself stuck to gathering statistics and using them to predict future performance. It did not actually plan out current operations or future expansion. With the advent of the first five-year plan at the end of the 20s, this, of course, all changed. Gosplan's mission statement was expanded to include the phrase that would become associated with the Soviet Union through its entire history, central planning. This meant the days of light-touch management of factories was done away with, and production quotas were assigned to the Union's industrial sector. Existing factories had to get their staffs acclimated to new demands, while the numerous facilities established after the plan commenced were expected to hit the ground running. How these operations achieved their assigned goals was where that old leeway in management still existed, except it might have been more of a burden because the lack of instruction was a tacit achieve-your-goals-by-any-means-necessary kind of thing. The Soviet government certainly tracked figures detailing individual productivity, cost of manufacture, and overall employment, but at the end of the day, the be-all, end-all metric was how much was being produced. If it was a steel foundry, it would be how many tons were being shipped out. With textiles, it was how much fabric or completed articles of clothing were being made available. How management went about doing that didn't matter as much as just getting finished goods out the door. And this created some pretty bad distortions in the economy. I say central planning, and you might think of it an immaculately detailed set of instructions on how to expand production. Well, as you might have guessed from the haphazard way collectivization was carried out in the countryside, uh, this wasn't like that at all in the cities either. Factories were given their targets, and their individual managements immediately embarked on a cutthroat competition to ensure that they weren't the ones to attract Moscow's attentions by failing to meet goal. A successful factory could be measured in having the fewest Politburo visits. And this competition manifested in different ways. Skilled workers were at a premium, and factories would desperately try and get qualified workers on board and keep them. If that wasn't an option, managers would cast a wide net and get as many bodies as they could working, allowing a kind of natural selection to weed out those who couldn't hack the work. Factories, of course, require input goods. Uh, steel factories need iron, coal, and other metals to create alloys. Textiles need wool or cotton. Tractor and locomotive factories need specialized components to be manufactured and then assembled into a finished product. Managers competed with each other over access to these materials, and a kind of black market emerged. Each factory was supposed to be assigned certain resources, like, say, an expanding steel factory gets its basic requirement of metal and coal, as well as building materials and equipment for new facilities. Well, train shipments were a very precarious thing in those days. If a factory a few stops ahead of you had the similar requirements, they might arrange with whoever was running the train a chance to dip into your allotment, making their lives easier and yours much worse. In certain circumstances, uh, certain pieces of equipment might have gotten lost in transit, and you were forced to contact other factories in the region to see if you could bargain for a uh, replacement. And I do say bargain, there was always a transactional nature to such interactions. 
The system of allocation also made price controls by the state superfluous. Everything depended on what actually came in on the train shipment. And if you could negotiate a little extra to be dropped off on your stop. I can only imagine how annoyed the guys in the Far East must have been waiting at the end of a very long train ride, uh, fearful of what they would actually receive from the center. And you'd think that the change in direction to make actual profits a secondary or even a tertiary priority might have been a relief. But the trick about making output quotas an absolute priority was that those quotas constantly changed. I talked about this before, but it bears repeating. The five-year plan was always in a flux because those in charge of it were constantly discovering that ever more ambitious targets were actually achievable, at least compared to the initial goals, uh, especially by the second half of the plan, uh, they had fully entered La La Land. The point wasn't to win the plan in the sense that its goals were met. The point was to make the USSR the strongest possible nation in the world. Declaring a win and going home wasn't an option. If output was doubled, that's fantastic. That means it can probably be tripled with enough attention. This did have an effect on output. In 1927-28, the USSR produced 3.3 million tons of pig iron. Pig iron being a crude type of iron that would be refined into something usable later, most commonly steel. Initially, the plan called for this to be bumped up to 8 million tons, then this was bumped to 10, and finally in 1932, the goal was raised to 15. The goal was in no way achieved, and by the end of the plan in 1932, only a little over 6.5 million tons were being produced. It had doubled, but fell well short of the new goals. The trick was that by 1933, the original stretch goal of 8 million was achieved, and 1934 saw the benchmark of 10 million tons be hit. By 1937, 14.5 million tons were being turned out, so in a decade, production of this baseline material had been quadrupled. Again, there was no winning the plan. You simply had to produce more for the sake of producing more. This did, though, exacerbate the hoarding of resources and hanging on to excess labor. The factory managers weren't idiots. They immediately grasped that, that there wasn't going to be any end to the targets. They were always going to be extended somehow. This led them to try and get a hold of as much input materials as they possibly could, even if they didn't immediately need them, as well as to have more workers on hand than was necessary to hit their goals. Because they knew the targets were just going to get bumped, and so having that excess capacity on hand before the inevitable happened meant that they were ready to produce more when called upon. This was, of course, inefficient, as it tied up resources and labor for a future surge of work when those things were needed elsewhere in the present. But such was life during the plan. And despite the cutthroat nature of the expansion, the results were striking. The economy grew on average to 5.3% per year, and industrial output increased by 11% per year from 1928 all the way to 1940, the last year before the German invasion really made a mess of everything. And that growth is taking into account the disastrous agricultural sector, or I suppose the phrase mass fatality sector would be more appropriate. A cornerstone part of the industrial sector was machinery production. This included both factory equipment capable of constructing other pieces of factory equipment, as well as motor vehicles, tractors, and locomotives that would then be used to ease and enhance production elsewhere. Remember that this had been the bugbear of the Soviet economy since the revolution. You need factories capable of producing machinery that would be used in other factories in order to have a sustainable industrial base. Machines, building machines, and all that. The reason this had been a problem was because if you didn't make your own equipment, you'd have to buy it from elsewhere, and one, that was expensive as a baseline, and two, most other countries were reluctant to sell to a communist nation. 
Until the Great Depression hit, for example, the French, led by their conservative-dominated government, were floating the idea of an international boycott on advanced industrial technologies to the Soviet Union in an effort to stymie that nation's development. This only fell apart when the Depression made collective action impossible for the capitalist states. The cost and hostile attitudes left the USSR stagnating through the 1920s. Really, the Great Depression was kind of a miracle for the Soviets, as it dispelled the inhibitions of foreigners to sell to them, and it also brought the cost of buying way, way down, since industrial output elsewhere was cratering. I mentioned in my Rise of the Nazis miniseries that German firms that went bust oftentimes sold entire facilities to the Soviets, and that included those machine tools. And the German government even underwrote a sizable loan to the Soviets for the express purpose of purchasing German-made equipment. Building machinery like locomotives and trucks helped streamline production across vast distances, and while tractors were always in short supply, they did heavily contribute to making farming more efficient and freeing up huge amounts of labor. From 1928 to 1937, output of machine-producing equipment increased by 11 times. The starting position of the Union was terribly low to be sure, but by the mid-30s, the Soviet industrial expansion was at least sustainable. It would have been even greater, but after 1937, Stalin started picking up that the chances of a world war were becoming too real to ignore and threw everything into military output, which, uh, to be fair, he was ultimately correct in that assessment. Elsewhere, the economy boomed as well. The sudden availability of millions of new workers turned out to be necessary, as to achieve that expansion of pig iron I talked about required the construction or complete rebuild of 42 blast furnaces. Still more hands were required to increase actual steel production from an annual output of 4.3 million tons to 18.3 by the end of the decade. On the steel front, specialists were called in from the United States, specifically from firms like Fran and McKee. Both were engineering companies whose clientele in the U.S. had dried up thanks to the Great Depression. While the relationship with the Americans was fraught, as neither party trusted each other, the technical expertise provided allowed the Soviets to build dozens of modern steel furnaces, with a half-dozen being among the largest in the world and comparable to the biggest American facilities. Just as importantly, it gave hands-on experience to Soviet engineers who would be able to carry on such work by themselves in the future. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention Albert Kahn, the American architect who made his name designing Ford's manufacturing plants. He was first contracted to design a massive tractor manufacturing plant in Stalingrad, based heavily on his work with Ford, and after that, helped establish programs to train Soviet engineers. Thanks to his work, thousands of industrial engineers and architects were trained who went on to build hundreds of factories. Just like in the Revolution and Civil War, the Soviets would experience severe growing pains as they adapted to the work that they were doing, but would persevere to become first proficient and later highly skilled. There were some sectors of the economy that lagged behind, though. The broader service industry tripled between 1928 to 1937, with 1937 again being kind of a cutoff as that was when military spending took precedence over everything else. And while that level of growth sounds good on paper, it didn't keep pace with heavy industry. And on top of that, most of the growth in the service industry was in construction, which, yeah, duh, you're gonna be building way more, so it better be expanding. The positives were that factories were being built as needed, you know, barely they were keeping up, and infrastructure by and large also kept up with the demands placed on it. The problem was in public housing, which very much so did not keep up, and in fact would not be caught up until after World War II. 
I'm going to get into it next week because I have a very specific case study that's going to provide some good in-practice examples of everything I'm talking about today, but housing conditions for new workers was atrocious. 12 million peasants streamed into the cities, and those cities didn't have anywhere to really put them, which was understandable. An extreme example was Moscow, which saw its population increase from 2 million to 3.7 million. There isn't a municipal government in the world that can acclimate changes like that in so short a time frame. Or worse, factories were established out in the middle of nowhere, and I'm especially talking about Magnitogorsk, which is where I'll be zeroing in on next week, which meant housing had to be built from scratch out there for everybody. The most infamous example were public workers' barracks, which were exactly what they sounded like. They were open buildings with bunks and communal spaces for living, and they were occupied by entire families. Because of the lack of investment in housing, these buildings were almost as a rule ramshackle and miserable in whatever extreme weather season you found yourself in. Boiling in the summer, freezing in the winter, and all that. Food was universally bad there, and creature comforts were nil. But even those conditions were livable compared to what others went through. Because sometimes there wasn't enough construction material for even barracks. Sometimes workers had to build tent cities. Or in the case of Magnitogorsk, out in the steppes, they built mud huts. As you might imagine, the tents weren't especially pleasant during the wintertime. The more consumer-facing service industry, meaning retail stores and food markets and the like, barely grew at all, which on one hand was an issue because, hey, there were a lot more consumers on hand, but, well, on the other hand, thanks to shortages of everything, it wasn't like there was a lot to really sell people. And that leads me to consumer goods, or rather the absence of them. The idea of the first five-year plan was that people would sacrifice their short-term material comforts in exchange for expanding industries that would make later investments into consumer goods much easier. Basically, you give up for a little while up front and the benefits would be better later. The problem was that it took a little longer to actually get that going than what people had might have anticipated. By 1937, well into the second five-year plan, consumer good production had actually increased by almost 80% compared to 1928. Unfortunately, the increase to 1932, the end of the first plan, was only 14%, which you have to take into account the growing population and increased urban consumers and know that that really didn't cut it. It didn't help that at the outset of the plan in 1928, Stalin cracked down still more on the remaining Nepmen who dominated small consumer shops, reducing their numbers from 600,000 to 140,000 in that year alone. Uh, don't cry too much for them, Benny found government jobs managing supply chains of consumer products, so same job, different circumstances. But yeah, uh, during the first five-year plan, the consumer goods situation was dicey as all hell all the way through. Part of this was, of course, because investment was geared towards heavy industries, but a huge part, too, were the disasters suffered during collectivization, as not only was the food supply badly curtailed, always the biggest source of public consumption, but also the production of fabrics, wool, cotton, hides, and the like, those were all badly reduced as well. A two-thirds reduction in the amount of sheep in the USSR understandably did a number on the wool available for the textile factories to actually, you know, turn into clothing. The loss of leather meant that shoes and boots saw a shortfall in production, again, just as the urban population was rising. Part of the drive to grow cotton in Central Asia, which would have disastrous environmental impacts extending well past the scope of this show, really got underway in these years as cotton came to supplement the traditional wool supply to manufactured clothing. 
The problems with the food supply were such that urban workers set up miniature farms in the cities, while factories sponsored farms on whatever spare land they had. Factory managers even went so far as establishing granaries to store food and created distribution programs for both food and clothing for their workers. Much to his own chagrin, this was endorsed by Stalin in 1930 in order to keep all the other operations running smoothly. The breakneck expansion and its resulting distortions and human costs have called into question the justification for such a program versus supporting the NEP and allowing a more liberalized economic expansion. Uh, this has been a debate going on for generations at this point, and I don't intend to settle it here. It's very true that the NAP's focus on private enterprise and investment had the potential to more naturally expand the economy, as with a focus on consumer consumption, it was pretty much a lock for expansion given the low floor it had been starting from. Again, though, I'm looking at this from a retrospective angle, knowing exactly what was coming for the Soviet Union. In no circumstance under the NEP can I see Soviet industry developing itself to meet the challenge of fighting against fascist Europe. Heavy industry, sorely lacking in the USSR in 1928, was an absolute must, and letting market forces make the investment decisions would mean that by the end of the 30s, the USSR would be fatally ill-prepared to meet the onslaught. And again, this is all retrospective, and looking at this from a very specific angle, I'm not trying to explain away the human misery and sacrifices made during this period. But the idea that there would be a general war, and one directly targeting the Soviet Union, was very much etched into the minds of the Soviet leadership. Even the right wing of the party that supported the NEP also recognized this as a distinct possibility which to the modern listener might sound paranoid, but keep in mind the promises men like Hitler and the lesser dictators of Central Europe made to combat communism, and how, as we've recently covered, the Japanese Empire saw the Soviets as a long-term strategic enemy. I'm not even going to get into how every other great power was at least passively hostile to the Union. The USSR did not have the benefit of China in the 1980s. There were clear and present enemies at the gates that during the 30s were only growing stronger and more belligerent. Whereas China in the 1980s liberalized its economy in an atmosphere of fading fear of communism, the USSR in the late 20s and 30s was the subject of intense and active hatred. During an industrial conference in February 1931, Stalin put it bluntly, It is sometimes asked, whether the pace can be reduced a bit, and the speed of development restrained, to which he answered himself, no, this is impossible. To slacken the tempo would mean falling behind, and those who fall behind get beat. But we do not want to get beat up. One feature of the history of old Russia was the continual beating she suffered because of her backwardness. She was beaten up by the Mongol Khan. She was beaten up by the Turkish Bays. She was beaten up by the Swedish Barons. She was beaten up by the Polish-Lithuanian Pans. She was beaten up by the Anglo-French capitalists. She was beaten up by the Japanese lords. All beat her because of her backwardness, her military backwardness, cultural backwardness, political backwardness, industrial backwardness, agricultural backwardness. Such is the law of the exploiters. Beat up and rob the backward and the weak. Capitalism's law of the jungle. You are backward, you are weak, and therefore you are wrong. Therefore, you can be beaten up and enslaved. You are mighty. Therefore, you are right. Therefore, we must handle you carefully. We are a hundred years behind the advanced countries. We must make good the gap in ten years. Either we do it, or they will crush us. Now, 
Last season, during my first few episodes introducing the Russian Empire, you might have noticed a pattern of reform and soul-searching done after a crushing defeat at the hands of a foreign power. But those reforms were never grand enough or pursued with enough vigor to solve the fundamental weakness of the Russian territorial unit. Here, we have a state that not only proactively identified the challenges to be faced, but was able to pursue corrective action with the energy necessary to meet them. Then there were the ideological grounds of pursuing such a course. The nation was mobilized like never before, and unemployment, which had stood around 10% in the 1920s, was effectively wiped out by 1931. This was during a period where outside the Union, you could expect unemployment of around 15 to 25% during the first half of the 30s. Support wasn't just derived from people wanting a grander project than base liberalization, but also from the fact that the entire rest of the world appeared to be in a terminal crisis. I'll be going into this more in a couple weeks when I talk about the changing patterns of culture brought about by the rapid industrialization of the first five-year plan, but there was a major self-esteem boost among many Soviet workers. Despite their isolation from the rest of the world, they were painfully aware of the backwardness of the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire before it. Stalin didn't harp on that aspect as a personal pet peeve. Rather, he played upon the insecurities of the whole nation. These massive new facilities didn't just crank out huge amounts of material. But they were mechanized and modern to a degree the general population had never seen before. Suddenly, they were on the cutting edge, regardless of the growing pains. Before 1928, over half of workers were employed in small-scale industrial operations. By the end of the 30s, that was down to just 15%. Three-quarters of the industrial labor force, which again had grown by leaps and bounds over the decade, were employed in factories manned by 500 or more people, and close to two-thirds overall were in factories of 1,000 people or bigger. And while the old factories were certainly modernized and renovated, much of this expansion came from brand new factories built during the plan. The early focus on education on the part of the Bolsheviks paid dividends during these years, as the modern plants required technical aptitude which came from education. Correspondingly, much of the workforce in the factories became much younger, with 80% of workers having five years or less experience in their new fields, and women in the sector rising to account for 43% of the workers. It was a whole new world, and a modern one at that. The Soviets were always a people apart from the rest of the world, and now they could hold their heads high in pride. But before you become dizzy from the successes of the first five-year plan's industrialization campaign, I think zooming in the focus might be in order. That's why next week, I'll be looking at the example of Magnitogorsk as a kind of case study, a city built around what in the early 30s was a brand new and supposedly state-of-the-art steel foundry. It might be the most extreme example of the rapid industrialization campaign and has most all the notable characteristics of the period wrapped up into one setting, which is convenient for me. And I do mean that the city was built around the factory. The location was an empty step until hundreds of thousands of people showed up to build it all out of nothing. I've spent today being very macro level, so next week will hopefully be illustrative about what many of the topics discussed today meant in practice. So join me then. And as always, thank you very much for listening.